Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Everyone, I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. The January 6th Select Committee isn't resting. Multiple sources telling CNN that the former Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, could sit for deposition as soon as this week. The committee shift to cabinet-level officials seems to indicate that they are interested in conversations about invoking the 25th Amendment after the attack on the Capitol. Now, Pompeo would join the list of several cabinet or also former cabinet-level officials to meet with the committee. And that panel isn't the only one moving forward. It's now clear the DOJ hasn't been dragging its feet. It's been, well, putting one foot in front of the other. Now, where it ends up is not entirely certain, but the DOJ seems to have its marching orders in place. Today, we're going to follow those footsteps and dive into how far the DOJ has actually reached into the Trump administration, and specifically where federal prosecutors are now focusing their efforts. According to the Washington Post, quote, there are two principal tracks of the investigation, unquote. The first, such as conspiracy. In other words, the same charges the department has brought against defendants and groups like the Proud Boys and, of course, the Oath Keepers. The same groups, the January 6th committee, attempted to connect to Trump in prior hearings. The second, the false elector scheme. Now, we can't give this one short shrift either. The goal, of course, prevent the certified and legitimate electoral votes from being counted on January 6th. That would have been the official proceeding. That's important context here as we learn more and more about who investigators are talking with. And we know now that includes Cassidy Hutchinson, who is apparently cooperating with the DOJ. The former advisor, Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, testified before the select committee that Meadows knew that January 6th could get bad, that Trump knew the crowd was armed. Meadows wanted to go to the so-called war room at the Willard Hotel Oh, and Trump didn't want to do anything to stop what he saw happening on that occasion, all of which would be of interest in any conspiracy investigation, among other things. We're also hearing from other Trump officials, former officials, that is, that Hutchinson isn't the only one talking with federal prosecutors. I am aware of other uh, White House officials who have um, been reached out to by DOJ and are planning to cooperate. I think DOJ is keeping an eye on who's coming before January 6th and who may have helpful information. Well, it's not just who was talking now, it's who was talking then, and to whom. They're gathering hard evidence. A court filing today shows the DOJ got a new search warrant to examine what's on John Eastman's phone. Yes, that Eastman, as in the Eastman memo, the private Trump lawyer at the center of the fake elector scheme. Dragging their feet? No. If anything, they might just be picking up the pace. But the question is, who should be afraid of hearing the footsteps behind them? Look, I've got two key guests in studio with me tonight. Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy from the January 6th Select Committee and D.C. Police Officer Daniel Hodges. So glad that both of you are here. He defended the Capitol that very day. And you remember this video of him. 
being crushed in a door as he fought valiantly to keep the rioters out. I want to thank both of you for being here. And we're going to launch into the fact that Pompeo may be testifying. But before, I want to recognize this moment here. It was about a year ago to the date that we're in right now where you first testified on the Hill. And the two of you were in that hearing room and you had an opportunity to thank this officer for helping you to go home that day. I want to remind the public of what that moment was like. I have a 10-year-old son and a 7-year-old daughter. And they're the light of my life. And the reason I was able to hug them again was because of the courage that you and your fellow officers showed that day. We all remember that moment. I see in your eyes right now that it's difficult to even relive that and to hear that and the humility that you showed in that moment. What is it like for the two of you to be here today together, your first interview together, I would add? What does this moment feel like to you? It's, uh, we've come a long way since the uh, first hearing. You know, a lot of information has come out, and I'm very grateful to the, uh, the congresswoman and the rest of the members of the committee, their staff, for the work they've done. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to the rest of the information coming out and, you know, sitting here with uh, the congresswoman. It's, uh, it's great to see, you know, the lives that we managed to protect that day continue on and continue to thrive. So important. I mean, as a mother, it must be just a constant reminder to know and watch what happened in this, on January 6th, just how devastatingly violent and how this could have gone. Yeah, you know, for me, it's just, um, I'm still so grateful for Officer Hodges and all of the other officers who um, ensured that all the members of Congress and all of the folks, um, staff and otherwise, uh, in the Capitol were able to go home and hug their children and their family members. And I think it's why the mission of the committee has been so important, is for us to start with the commitment to duty that these law enforcement officers showed in protecting the Capitol, and then laying out all the facts that led us up to uh, January 6th in our last hearing, where we highlighted the dereliction of duty from the President of the United States, who sat by while officers were being attacked violently, while people were hunting down his vice president and other members of Congress. Uh, And he sat for 187 minutes, choosing not to do anything. When you think about that, just the the sheer number, 187 minutes, I mean, that is an extraordinarily painfully long amount of time. And we saw the efforts that were happening. When you go through and think about how you methodically have laid out the testimony and the evidence, People are very critical at the end of the day, comparing it to a prosecution, which it's not. It's not intended to be a prosecution. I am a prosecutor. It wasn't intended to be that. But there is still the talking point that's out there to try to be dismissive of the work of the committee, that um, it's not enough for that we should move beyond and we should just overlook what's happening. You heard Norman Lear make the comment of there's the over and then there's the next, and people want to go to that next. But why is it so important to you to know the committee's work is helping to understand that this might not be over. I think it's really important that the committee lays out the facts for the American people and for history. And I also think that it's important that through the voices of the Republicans who refused to cheat to win for somebody they supported and worked for, that through them, the folks who are supporters of the president have permission to support his policies while he was in office, but also recognize that his efforts to remain in office when he had lost a free and fair election is out of bounds. 
your intention was never to be political. I mean, you were, you know, you're an officer. You're um, calling, you've described many times before, is being fulfilled. And yet I wonder, being in this situation, you have been thrown into the political spotlight. I'm not going to call it the limelight because I know it's not. The political spotlight. Um, what has it been like for you to now see that the DOJ is beginning to investigate? They have over 900 people they've already prosecuted, which is no small number. Um, at the last hearing we saw, or two hearings ago, we saw a man who has been prosecuted but not sentenced apologize for what happened. What has been your reaction to these prosecutions and the way that the hearings have actually evolved? It's, uh, it's a big relief to see, you know, progress, visible progress. Obviously, um, I'm not privy to the Department of Justice and their inner workings. I don't know what they've got going on, but I, I just see what, uh, what the American people see. And it's, it's a big relief to see things finally come to fruition. And I'm definitely looking forward to, uh, to the rest of it coming out and where we can go from here. Well, we're looking at September, right? We're understanding. And we're hearing that Pompeo might be testifying. How did that come about? Was that a, a lot of negotiation? I can't imagine he was raising his hand as an eager beaver to say, please pick me next. How did that work? We don't talk about the specifics of our uh, uh, interactions with the witnesses that come before us. But what I will say is that the committee is dogged about having folks who have relevant information for our uh, investigation come before our committee. And we're willing to pursue that to whatever um, end state uh, allows us to receive the information that is so critically necessary for us to display to the American people. And I think we had a, a big win with the um, Bannon being charged for contempt. You know, nobody in this country should feel like they are above the law and can defy a congressional subpoena. And um, for us, we're just trying to get to the facts. So was Pompeo subpoenaed? We are working with his counsel to um, uh, engage with him. And, and that's pretty much what I can say. I understand. And I, I wonder with the parallel of happening of the DOJ, which you know, the work is to be done in secret. We have a presumption of innocence in this country, obviously. We don't want people to just have a um, sort of a sword of Damocles or a scarlet letter on their body if they're only being investigated. And yet, I wonder what you make of the fact that there seems to be a ramping up or at least an investigation ongoing right now with that particular department. I think it's a very good sign that our uh, balance of powers, our democracy, law and order, the rule of law, all of that is healthy and alive. And I take great um, heart in the fact that uh, Merrick Garland has said that he will pursue justice to wherever it leads. And in our country, that has to be the end state. Officer, you have seen and probably heard over the last several days the former president speaking um, with great reverence towards law enforcement in this country and about um, not wanting to villainize and protecting the officers. It's hard to look at that and hear it without thinking about the 187 minutes laid out by the committee of not doing anything, as far as we know, to stop what happened to all of you on Capitol Hill. What's your reaction to what former President Trump has had to say about respect for law enforcement? I, uh, I haven't heard anything he's had to say. I try not to listen to him when I can help it. Um, but hearing you tell me that, it just seems like virtue signaling to me. Like uh, he, uh, him and his base like to imagine themselves as pro-law enforcement, but only when the law benefits them. And um, yeah, I, uh, I did not see any support for the police on January 6th. I saw a lot of people defying our lawful orders and assaulting us and trying to make their way into the Capitol building 
to uh, commit acts of violence against you know, Congress people and staff and try to um, overturn a free and fair election. Congresswoman, is part of the role and the duty of this committee to reflect the reverence that ought to be for the law enforcement who guarded your lives that day? I think it's not just to reflect the reverence that should be, but also to provide them with the resources that they need to be better equipped. Um, God forbid this ever happened to us again. But I think January 6th exposed the Capitol as a soft target, not just to domestic, but also foreign enemies. And so we have a responsibility to provide the folks who are charged with keeping us safe with the resources that they need to do so. And responsibility, obviously, that old phrase, a republic if you can keep it. Well, we know how it can be lost. Thank you both. Nice speaking with you. In this very, very poignant moment to see both of you together. We were all very touched by that moment one year ago today and to see it here. Thank you, both of you. Great to be with you. Representative Stephanie Murphy, Officer Daniel Hodges, thank you so much. I'll ask the former Attorney General, Alberto Gonzalez, well, what he makes of all the news coming from his old department in just a moment. And we'll talk about the Biden administration's proposal for Russia. Give us Brittany Griner, give us Paul Whelan, and you can have your arms dealer back. All right, so it's full steam ahead in the DOJ's investigation into the 2020 election interference. Excuse me. Just today, we've learned several new details. Former Trump White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson is cooperating with the feds. They are apparently obtaining a warrant as well for the contents of John Eastman's cell phone. Remember, they had the phone. This is now the contents of the cell phone to actually be able to view what's on it. And the DOJ is asking the January 6th committee for more transcripts. So what does all this mean for where Attorney General Merrick Garland's investigation stands? And also, where is it going? Let's talk to somebody who's been in his very shoes. Here he is now, former U.S. Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez. Thank you for being here. The perfect person to speak with about all the chatter that's happening about the expectations of what an AG ought to be doing. I wonder first, primarily, what you make of the fact that everyone seems to know exactly what they should be doing. You have been the AG. You're shaking your head. You're reminiscing. I know you are. Tell me what your thoughts are. Well, before I get into that, let me just say, express thanks to Officer Hodges and his colleagues for the work that they did on January 6th in keeping members of Congress or staff, the Capitol, um, safe. Um, they did their job. Now, DOJ um, investigators and prosecutors are doing their job, and that is to find out who is responsible, what happened, uh, what crimes were committed, um, and to make decisions as to whether or not they should move forward with the prosecution, whether or not, you know, charging decisions now are going to be made in the very near future. Um, I, I think I think it's wrong to assume that DOJ is just now ramping up. I think this investigation has been in place for quite some time. As you know, Laura, very well, uh, these investigations are, are confidential. You have grand jury uh, proceedings that are that are secret, that are confidential. And so a lot of the work, there's been a lot of work ongoing. And so we're getting to a point now where I think things are becoming a little bit more public. But I think it's wrong to assume that the department uh, has been sitting by and watching the January 6th hearings. Uh, you know, I think that uh, I, I think they've been doing their, their, their work and I think they're going to be ready uh, to fulfill uh, the attorney general's pledge that those responsible are going to be held accountable. 
You know, it's an important point, the idea of what the role of the legislative committee is, having the open hearings in public. That's not what the DOJ should be doing, with the presumption of innocence, of course, being there. But also the idea of people believing the timing and the clock. We know, of course, that the patience of the American electorate is not, you know, as long as ever. But we also know that there is a kind of a timeline kind of a deadline that's in place. We're talking about close to an election. Now, I have always thought that that included only those who might find themselves on a ballot. That's the thumb on the scale the DOJ tries to avoid. In this instance, if this were to go up the chain to the prior president or to those who are not currently on a ballot, should the DOJ consider that in its investigation timeline? You know, these guidelines with respect to uh, announcing an investigation or uh, uh, possible uh, charges against someone close to an election um, really are in, intended to uh, provide uniformity with respect to charging decisions around the country amongst U.S. attorney offices uh, and to ensure that uh, the reputation of the, of the department is protected against suggestions of, of bias or unfairness. But the notion that it would prohibit the, uh, the attorney general from making a charge and decision Uh, To me, I I don't believe that that's accurate. I think uh, when the department is ready to make a decision, when the attorney general has made a decision, is ready to announce charges, if that's the the direction he's going to go, then that's what they're going to do. Obviously, they're going to be mindful of the effects it might have with respect to ongoing elections. But in terms of an outright prohibition, you know, again, the attorney general is charged to investigate wrongdoing and to prosecute wrongdoing. Speaking of prosecution, the U.S. has prosecuted successfully somebody who's known as the merchant of death. We're learning today that there might be an attempt to have a prisoner swap as it relates to this person with Russia in exchange for Paul Whelan, a former U.S. Marine, and of course the WNBA star and two-time Olympian Brittany Griner. Now, all three have varying and very distinct and different types of crimes and allegations against them. I wonder what you make of the thought of a prisoner swap, given the lack of parity between the charges? Uh, you know, it's, I hesitate to, to be critical or question because I don't know all the facts here. I don't, mm-hmm. I, other than what's being reported, uh, it, it appears that there appears to be some disparity. Uh, I'd like to think we, we would have greater leverage in order to uh, 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 secure the release of these two U.S. citizens. Uh, the fact that we might be suggesting trading someone, a, a convicted arms dealer, someone who's very dangerous, mm-hmm. someone that we spent a great deal of time and effort to uh, to uh, capture and to bring to justice. But again, I, I'm, I'm going to hesitate. I, I hesitate to be uh, overly critical. I, I guess I need to get more information to fully understand why then this makes the best sense, quite frankly, and is in the best interest, not just of these two Americans, but also o- overall in the best interest of this country. Very prudent. What I would expect from a former attorney general, sir, to make sure you had all of the facts. I'm in a different role. I'm going to dive right into all those momentarily. But I appreciate you. Thank you for taking the time to be a part of the program tonight. Thank you so much. Thanks, Laura. We'll keep this conversation going with our panel next. And we're going to talk about whether there's a smoking gun somewhere in the DOJ investigation or a few or none at all. Just a moment. A ton of news tonight on the January 6th front. We've heard from a committee member as well tonight. We've heard from an officer who was also there. And we just heard from a former attorney general. 
So let's hear from our experts here at the panel today. Former Democratic Senator Doug Jones, former Deputy Assistant Attorney General Elliot Williams, and Editor-in-Chief of The Dispatch, Jonah Goldberg. Glad you're all here. There's a lot of news in the January 6th front. I mean, the thought that Mike Pompeo might go before the committee and they're trying to work with them to figure out a good time, that's pretty big news and pretty close to, I mean, it's a cabinet member, for goodness sakes. That's huge. No, it's really big. Uh, you know, look, I, I think most people thought that they would end the hearing last week, primetime, big show, stunning testimony. Uh, but they've still got work to do, and they're clearly doing it. And I, as we've talked about before, in these kind of investigations, you know, one hearing leads to another because you've got more witnesses who feel comfortable or compelled to come forward. And it's interesting that we may see some higher level folks coming down. And that ban and conviction, I think, is probably put a little bit of a fire under people to say, oh, this is real. I mean, mm-hmm. things just got real. It was probably going to people's minds in that moment in time when he was convicted for contempt. You can't really sort of thumb your nose. Although Mark Meadows, yeah. right, and, um, and uh, Dan Scavino, they were not prosecuted, either they were referred. What's your thought? You know, well, the thing is, you know, the interesting thing about the misdemeanor from hell is that you can actually go to jail for it, um, as uh, Steve Bannon is going to find out. Look, it's got a mandatory minimum Middle. sentence. Now, look, um, Mark Meadows is in a slightly different position as a White House chief of staff. He would have necessarily had some privileges um, that are hard to get around it. And but I think Pompeo? maybe hard to charge. Pompeo, right. No, but the, um, that's another uh, issue that's out there as well. And so um, he has an incentive now that uh, we've seen a senior um, aide to the president going to jail. Um, and so perhaps that might encourage more witnesses yes, to testify. I'll do deference to the lawyers. Yeah. Um, it here we go. I know no, that's like, I, I, that's I, like no disrespect, but here it comes. <laughs> <laughs> I think the most significant thing about Pompeo testifying is he's the first person to testify who is clearly a potential presidential candidate wow. in 2024. Mm. And this signals possibly that they've done the sort of risk reward calculus and he's trying to figure out how to do his messaging on uh, January 6th, on the Stop the Steal stuff, about how he positions himself vis-a-vis Trump. We, there's a lot of people in Washington who think Mike Pence has already started the sort of the Game of Thrones maneuvering. He um, has, really. I mean, right. don't you think for all intents and purposes, he's, he's, sure. he has, right. I think. And so, like, it, when, when one of the players in, a, in one of these sort of game theory situations starts to go, you can't sit on the sidelines any longer. And I think the political gamesmanship of trying to figure out what all of this means for Trump and running against Trump particularly when Trump says he's going to be running, he's probably going to announce before the midterms, the whole game has started earlier about how to position in the GOP race. Part of positioning, too, you see, um, you know, some Democratic, um, you know, campaigners and thinking about this to try to support those who they think are very aligned with Donald Trump as extremists and hoping that that will be an easier lift in the general election. That's quite a, ga- Ooh, that's quite a gamble and not a good one, I can see from your face. No, I, I, I have been totally opposed to that from the very beginning. You know, one, I just don't think it's right for Democrats to play in the Republican primary anymore. And I think it's right for the Republicans to play in the Democratic. I mean, for the loyalists in Alabama, we've got uh, open primaries. But folks that are truly Democrats, they, they should let the other party rise or fall on their own. And it is a hell of a risk. I mean, you know, it, to, to put some folks now, there's some seats that are relatively safe that you're just elevating the, the, the name. You're not going to have to spend as much money. But the fact that they would get involved and even take the chance that this whole committee is spending so much time and effort to try to show this 
is just it's just wrong. It's, it's just not wrong. just the partisan point of meddling in another party's primary, right. which is, you know, their organizations and they're having their primaries. The bigger point is there is a moral, legal and constitutional point that has been made about the conduct in January 6th Absolutely. that Democrats are now looking the other way about uh, in bolstering some of these. Some of these folks may end up you may have as the governor of Pennsylvania, literally a guy who uh uh, you know, should I say insurrectionist? You know, but needless to say, he might end up being governor of Pennsylvania, yeah. and that's happening across the country. Not some of them are going to win. Yeah, because unlike in Maryland, when Governor Hogan denounced the nominee in Maryland, you're not seeing a lot of that in Pennsylvania. Maybe a little bit, Jonah. I don't yeah. know, but you're not seeing it right now. And I think that personally, I think they rally around this guy. Well, yeah. Look, I mean, my, my the thing that drives me crazy is the moral component of this. Is that we heard a lot of Democrats, we hear a lot of Democrats today praising Liz Cheney for her heroism and standing up to the GOP. We heard a lot back in the day about the 10 Republicans who voted for impeaching Donald mm-hmm. Trump and how that was a profile in courage. And now Nancy Pelosi and various PACs are actually spending money trying to destroy those guys because yeah. they'll be harder to beat. They're doing it to Pete Meyer in Michigan, that it's a Valdeo in California. And if you actually, if you're going to, I just don't want to hear from people saying, how lamentable and sad it is that there are no honorable, honorable and principled people in the GOP who also are totally fine with trying to destroy these guys on the off chance that they'll be able to have a slightly better chance of beating some MAGA you know, person that they consider a fascist. If you're going to call them a fascist, you probably shouldn't be channeling millions of dollars in support of their campaign. Are One you of them suggesting consistency yeah. in Washington, D.C.? <laughs> is this news to you? Consistency in Washington, D.C.? No, no hypocrisy? Can't no, do it at all? I've been in those cloak rooms. It's, it's pre- not news, okay? In January 6th, it's one thing to play hardball politics. Afterwards, you can't say that these people are literally a threat to democracy, but we're going to nominate them. We're going to help them get nominated because we think they'll be easier and to beat. someone's going to win. Absolutely. One of them is somewhere across America. Donald Trump did it in 2016, guys, yeah, and he got a lot of What's the this? worst that could yeah. happen? Well, so, we don't yeah. want to answer that question. We've seen in part the on the path the worst that can happen we'll talk more about this in a moment elliot williams thank you so much doug and jonah stick around as well sorry your suit's too uh, good oh. the they told me their suit your suit's too tailored forget about it get off the screen remember when president biden said that inflation was just temporary well temporary is a lot longer than it used to be because that was more than a year ago when he said that next i'll ask one of the president's senior advisors what the white house is doing to ease america's pain The best bad option to combat rising prices enacted today makes some things more expensive. The Fed has now hiked interest rates a massive three quarters of a percentage point twice in a row. But even the Fed chair warns they don't know for sure what lies ahead. Inflation has obviously surprised to the upside over the past year, and further surprises could be in store. Well, surprises are not what anyone wants, especially as we see scenes like this. Cars lined up at food banks, people relying on the kindness of strangers just to feed their families. Chairman Jerome Powell admits the Fed can do very little about food and gas prices. Let's turn to the White House. I'm joined now by a senior advisor to the president, Gene Sperling. Gene, I'm glad that you're here today. Thank you so much. When you see, and we're seeing images of the lines at food banks... We're seeing the prices. We're seeing the turmoil, the tension, the burdens people are feeling. And the question people have is, how much longer? They're asked to be patient. How much longer must they be? 
Well, we totally understand that even though we've had record job creation, even though unemployment is at a historically low 3.6%, and many people have received wages, that it is painful for Americans to deal with the higher prices at the gas pump, uh, the higher prices in the food line, even though this is clearly a global phenomenon, you know, caused by the aftershocks of a, a unprecedented uh, pandemic and an unprecedented, uh, well, unthinkable uh, armed aggression in Ukraine that has ra- ri- risen gas prices everywhere. Uh, but, you know, we have seen some progress recently. We've seen gas prices come down 70 two cents. We've seen in 15 states, it's now under uh, uh, $4 that uh, um, uh, that 50,000 gas stations are under $4. And we know that a significant cause of that was actions this president took to release the strategic petroleum reserve uh, oil a million a day and get uh, our allies to contribute to that, uh, that he's made uh, E15 gas more eligible for the Summer. So we're going to do everything that we can. We, there's no silver bullet, uh, but I think there's a lot of progress we can make, particularly if we have help from Congress. And today you saw... Well, actually, excuse me, Gene, yeah. it's not just help from Congress, right? I mean, consumers, they drove down the demand for gas as well. That also helped to support what you're talking about. So how much of it can be attributed to the administration's being proactive when, as opposed to consumers, simply reducing the demand for gas. Well, actually, the Treasury Department did put out an analysis and found that about 40 cents of the reduction was due to the president's actions on the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. As you know, the president has also suggested we could lower uh, gas uh, prices by another 50 cents if we did a holiday on federal and state uh, gas taxes. And again, you also see the president taking action across the board. Today, the president welcomed an agreement by Senator Schumer and Senator Manchin that would lower prescription drug costs and cap those costs, lower energy costs, lower health care premiums. The action we've taken before is going to allow Internet costs to be lower for up to 50 million families. So, you know, we obviously want to do everything we can to bring down those gas prices, Mm -hmm. but we're also just going to do everything we can to help the you know, Americans, uh, you know, with the, with their pocketbook issues. And again, uh, there's a lot the president can do and has done administratively, but there's no question we can do more uh, when we get support from Congress and things like capping prescription drug costs uh, that you saw an agreement on today. Uh, that can just make a huge difference because, as you know, that is one of the major price issues, particularly for older Americans year in and year out. It certainly is. And I certainly want to share your optimism, as do most Americans on that very notion. But we've seen Joseph Pass's prologue hanging one's hat on the prospects of progress simply on a maybe a statement by Senator Joe Manchin when he's been a thorn in the side of the administration's economic agenda for as long as President Biden's been the president. Are you skeptical about a deal that's made in principle but not actually codified and memorialized? Should the American people have ultimate faith that that would be a litmus test and measure of progress? Well, look, you know, all I can say is that the president strongly welcomed this agreement by Senator Schumer and Senator Manchin. You've seen wide agreement, uh, uh, even with people who've, who've, who've disagreed or criticized us before, that this would reduce inflation, reduce the deficit, reduce drug costs, reduce health premiums for 13 million Americans. 
this is in addition to things like the CHIPS Act that just has passed the Senate and now go, go to the House, in which I know you have Ro Kahana coming on afterwards, and he's played a major role in this. And this is about also, as we're dealing with these immediate problems, I think America wants us to take care of these long-term supply issues and not put us in a vulnerable position in the, in, in the future and make us less dependent, whether it's semiconductor, semiconductors or energy. We want to make sure that we have a bit of more independence in ensuring we have the supply chains and the overall supply to keep costs down, not just, not just in reaction to this crisis, but in, in the long term as well. Well, I don't envy your position. You're in, I mean, the idea of having long-term solutions, short-term solutions, and trying to satisfy an increasingly um, impatient public is a very difficult task. But thank you for being here tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Still ahead, a big breakthrough for Senate Democrats. You heard Gene reference it just a moment ago. Joe Manchin is on board with an energy and health care bill. But does it have a chance? Democrats are looking for a pretty big win. Senate leader Chuck Schumer says he's got one coming. Schumer says he's reached a deal with Senator Joe Manchin on an economic bill that will be ready for a vote as early as next week. Among other things, he says that it would provide $369 billion for energy and climate programs with the goal of reducing carbon emissions by 40 percent by 2030, allow Medicare to negotiate prescription drug prices, cap out-of-pocket costs for drugs, and set a 15 percent corporate minimum tax. Schumer says it will be, quote, the greatest pro-climate legislation that has ever been passed by Congress. But will it actually pass? Let's ask a member of the House. Congressman Ro Khanna joins us along with former Senator Jones and Jonah Goldberg. I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you for staying, gentlemen, and welcome to the program, Congressman Khanna. I wonder what you know about this deal. What should we know, and should there be some enthusiasm and optimism behind it that could actually be passed? Well, we should be excited and enthusiastic. I spoke with Senator Manchin this afternoon. This is over $300 billion of climate investment. The estimates are that it would have 40% reduction of CO2 emissions. It's going to lower prescription drug prices. It's going to have a tax finally on corporations not paying tax. I haven't seen all the details, but it is significant progress. Is it what I would have wanted? No, I would have written more. But it is much, much better than anything that has come before. And I give Senator Schumer and Senator Manchin credit. Why the sort of about face? I mean, obviously, it's a good direction for your purposes, but why do you think his mind was changed? What was the cause? You know, I've been on uh, the out uh, with some saying, let's keep negotiating with Senator Manchin. And the reason I said that is he has said from the beginning that he would be for investments in solar, in wind, in battery. He has been for that since day one. And I said, let's engage and negotiate. And I'm glad that we continue to negotiate and it looks like we're going to have a deal. Look, politics, there are 435 members of Congress. There are 100 senators. Not everyone can get exactly what they want. It's the art of figuring out what moves the ball forward. This has a very good chance of making an enormous impact. You're nodding your head. You've been one of the 100. Yeah, no, I think that this is a, I think this is a monumental moment. And I know everybody is a little skeptical because we've seen deals in principle and, and all of a sudden they fell through. The difference is this has been going clearly... This has been something that has been kept under wraps because the same day that it came out, they released a 725-page text to it. It's down. It's in writing. This is not just in principle. 
This is a big deal, and it is a big deal for the administration who have been pushing these things. It is a big deal for the Senate, which uh, has had some wins this week with the the CHIP uh, bill and other things. This gives, I think, the administration, it gives Democrats... Um, and it, quite frankly, gives the country a little momentum and a little uplift. How about Republicans? I mean, that's obviously who has to be at the table as well. And these, I mean, what, what do you feel about the idea of, is this truly the type of compromise that could actually pass, not just be written? Well, on the CHIPS Act, look, I give Senator Todd Young a Republican credit. That's a big bill. It's about inventing things here, making things here, buying things here. You know, Taiwan is going to build 19 semiconductor fabs. China is going to build 30 fabs. And now, because of this bill, we're going to be able to build 12 factories here, manufacturing jobs in places like Ohio. This is bringing production back. And there were Republicans involved, like Todd Young, like Mike Gallagher, uh, who helped make that possible. What do you make of it, Jonah? Yeah, I mean, I I agree. The CHIPS bill, I mean, obviously, I would want to tinker with it differently, but I think it's a net good piece of legislation, and I'm glad it's going to pass. Um, On this, I think it's interesting. I saw somewhere that Manchin is billing this as the inflation reduction bill, right? And... um, uh, first of all, I'm very curious to know what Kirsten Cinema has to say. And second of all, I want to know if Mitch McConnell is going to have Joe Manchin's favorite horse's head put in his bed that Manchin's <laughs> going to wake up next to tomorrow morning. Because I very much doubt there are any Republicans who are really going to vote for this thing. And this, I love a Godfather reference, yeah, by so, the way. So uh, you can do no wrong. Is that wrong the Godfather? This, uh, <laughs> was it in the, oh, my God. I was going to say, <laughs> I almost gave you credit and took all of it away in that moment. It's such a dark thing to come up with without it being a Godfather. Okay. <laughs> um, but anyway, I, I think that this is uh, remains to be seen. I think this is very good. This, this illustrates in many ways that Joe Manchin, not Joe Biden, is in the sweet spot of American politics and is the decision maker in a lot of politics um, and is where more voters are than Joe Biden is. But ultimately, Jonah, the president gets credit for whatever passes. Right. And here's the thing. He also gets blamed for whatever doesn't. But, but here's why I think this is so significant. Because voters are going to trust Joe Manchin to say that this is going to lower inflation. Mm-hmm. He's been complaining about inflation, right. inflation, inflation. Now he's saying, look, this is going to lower the deficit. This is going to increase taxes on corporations, which is anti-inflationary. This is going to lower prescription drug prices. These are actual investments in clean energy that are going to make us more energy independent. I think this is a huge win for the country. As a conservative, I'm more skeptical about all of that, but that's fine. My point is simply that you're right, that more people are going to believe Joe Manchin than going to believe Joe Biden, because Joe Biden's standing right now is really, really poor and weak, and Joe Manchin is really where the majority of Americans are. Where is cinema? Well, I don't think cinema, I mean, let's see, but I think when you have the president and if you have Senator Schumer and you have the speaker and if you get progressives, I, I think this is going to pass. And I think with President Biden, we're putting the polls aside, which I grant, the polls aren't great. But you look at if these go through, you look at the American Rescue Plan, the infrastructure bill, chips bill to make stuff here, energy independence in the biggest climate bill, the bill to reduce Medicare prices, that's looking like a pretty good record. And you know, you run from office to become president to do stuff. And he's getting stuff done. And Jonah's right, though. This, this is where America is. But Joe had to move that way. He wasn't there. He had to Which move Joe, that Joe, Manchin or Biden? Joe, Joe Manchin about. had to move that way. I think Joe Biden has been there. He has let Schumer uh, and Manchin, you know, uh, duke this out. But Manchin had to move a little bit more to the center. I think he had to move uh, some. The White House knew that it was going to be uh, reduced a good bit. The Progressive Caucus knew that this was going to be reduced a bit. And the, the question I've got now is not cinema. I think that cinema will back this. The question I've got is whether or not Bernie Sanders will, because Bernie has come out and, and criticized this uh, to somewhat. 
at the end of the day, I think it's a reconciliation bill. So you only need 50 Democratic senators plus the vice president. So I think it passes. Is Senator Sanders on board? Do you know? I haven't talked to Senator Sanders, but I'll tell you this. Senator Sanders is ultimately a pragmatist who takes progress. And I think he's going to look at this. He's going to evaluate it. But if he sees that this is good for the climate and going to reduce emissions, I think he's going to be favorably inclined. And the best that he can get. You know what they say, success has a thousand fathers, failure is an orphan. So let's see what this child becomes. Everyone, Congressman Khanna, Doug Jones, Jonah Goldberg, thank you so much. Well, that's it for us. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.